Beloved brothers and sisters, if you would again turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. I would draw your attention again this week to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 as we continue working through this pastoral epistle the beloved Apostle John to these saints there in Ephesus, especially to these Jewish converts, most of whom he was addressing as an apostle to the Jews, that he would, these pastoral words, as he is a good shepherd, exhorts them against false teachers that had come into their midst and were falsely calling light what God says is darkness, they were calling it light. They were claiming to have truth that was contrary to that gospel revealed, that faith once revealed to the saints, as Jude says. They were claiming, as I said, a false light. They were, as Paul would say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, they were false apostles, false teachers, masking themselves as angels of light. Should Paul makes it clear it shouldn't surprise us when he does so. Satan, the enemy of our souls, and the demons, they are schemers. They are subtle. They are crafty. And these lies that had come in, John is writing to them as a beloved elder shepherd to this congregation of saints whom he loved in truth. And he is reminding them of the basis of truth, reminding them of what that truth is. And he is, today, as we're going to see, he is going to give... I'm going to call a pastoral pause, verse 12 through 14. He is going to, in the midst of the exhortations of warning them, reminding them of what the truth looks like, of reminding them how to discern truth from error and calling out the darkness for what it is so that the light and the truth might shine against it. He's going to take a moment. We'll see this week and next week. He's going to take this pastoral pause and he's going to remind them who they are. He's going to remind them of what is true about them. Brethren, for the comfort of their souls and consolation, as I trust it will be for yours, that this truth is that they are, in fact, forgiven by the Lord and that they are truly, in truth, the children of God. And they are not of the world. So, brethren, if you would stand together. I want to read together 1 John chapter 2. I'm actually just going to read from the top of the chapter for context. We're going to focus on verse 12 to 14 today, but hear the word of the Lord in faith. Receive it as the word of the Lord as it is in truth. 1 John 2, starting with verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this word of encouragement. Father, I pray that today as as the people of God, as those that are beloved, as it were, little children, the paideia of the Lord, that whether we are new in the faith, whether we are little children in that sense, newer in the faith, whether we are young men or even fathers, I pray, Father, that today we will draw great encouragement and assurance of faith that we are in the truth, that we are in the way of him who is the righteous one, that we are in the way of salvation, and that in doing so we will resist the lies of the devil. We will not be sheep that listen to the voice of hirelings, but as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Oh God, give us today that we would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd who is not feigned and who is not ashamed to call us his sheep. For we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. Well, as I said, the Apostle John has deep concern for this congregation. The lies of these kind of, you can call them Gnostic sort of mutant Gnostic Judaistic combination of, of heretical mixture had come in and they had said, no, we are the true apostles. We are the true teachers of Jesus. We were sent by Jesus. You remember that Jesus in Matthew 24 had even warned his disciples, including John. John was there when Jesus said these words and he had said, beware because I assure you And he said that within this generation, and here we are in about the mid-60s, early 60s A.D. as John is writing this, and and, and he had said, don't be deceived. False teachers, false prophets will arise in my name. They will come even doing signs. They will come saying that they are from me, maybe even doing signs, right? He says, do not be deceived. And he even said there that the deception would come and it would be so strong, this demonic deception in those last days of the old covenant, be so strong that it would be, if possible, that even the elect would be deceived. We're told that for the sake of the elect, those days would be shortened. Praise be to God. (laughs) But it was a strong deception, and it was exactly this. The spirit, as John is going to later in this chapter, as he's going to say, that spirit of Antichrist. That spirit that opposes, or the word anti in Greek, literally, uh, it has more the idea, not just of opposition, but a deceitful, deceptive, manipulative opposition, right? It's not just they were coming in and affronting Christ. It was more that they were presenting a false Christ, which Paul says in Galatians, another gospel which is not another, right? Whether an angel from heaven or anyone else comes even in Jesus' name and gives you some other gospel, Paul says, let him be accursed. Because the gospel, brethren, given to the apostles by Jesus the Lord, to Peter, James, and John, as well as to Paul, that gospel was come from Jesus himself. It was testified, seen, heard, as, as we saw at the beginning of 1 John. Part of John's fundamental opposition against these false teachers and their philosophies and their seeming their claims of enlightenment to being the true light and walking in the true light, John starts off and he says, no, let's go back to basics. How do you know that the apostolic testimony that we have given to you is true? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which our hands have t- handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. 
It was manifested, the light was manifested to us, and we have seen and, be declared and, and de- beheld and declared to you that eternal life which was with the Father. It was manifested to us. And we say these things, John says, to you, brethren, so that you may have fellowship with us, that is, with the apostles, with the true, with the, the faithful church of Jesus, the company of the redeemed, the elect, and that you have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father. Keep that in mind. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we say these things that your joy may be full. Because, brethren, these false apostles, these purveyors of darkness calling it light, they were actually, these wolves in sheep's clothing, they were coming in and the reality, John says, is they are here to steal away you from the truth, to steal your assurance, to steal your joy. And by doing so, to send your soul to perdition with them. So this is not, for John, just a philosophical, theological treatise and debate. Let's let's get together and let's talk about the virtues of darkness and light. This is urgent for John. There are sheep, Jesus' sheep, on the line here. And he is a faithful father, a faithful older shepherd, apostle who walked with Jesus. He is going to do everything here to make sure that the truth of the light of Christ, the gospel, that the grace and truth of Jesus, the glory of God that tabernacled among us and we beheld that glory, he is going to make sure that they know it and that they walk in it. And today, as we're going to look at verse 12 to 14, the thing he's going to do is in the midst of all that he has said to them, he's just gotten done, as we read, telling them that, you know, here's some tests, right? If we say, as the false apostles, the false teachers in their midst were saying, who come in them stealthily and unawares, as as Paul says in Galatians, these who have crept in, he says that, here's the the thing, saints, he says, if if we say, as they are saying, that we know him, they're, they're saying to you, yeah, we know Jesus, sure, just like you do. In fact, we know him well, you should listen to us. If we say that we know him, but we do not keep word keep he didn't say obey obey is implied the word keep though means hold fast you clutch it you don't keep his word you don't keep his commandments but don't be deceived it doesn't matter how much they say they're in the light it doesn't matter how much they say they were sent from jesus and know him they will be known as jesus says in matthew 7 you will know them by their fruits and the first fruit is do they keep the word, the apostolic prophetic word as delivered to us by the apostles and prophets. Isaiah 8, to the law and the testimony, if it does not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in it, right? Isaiah 8, 12. And then secondly, he says that if we say that we abide in Jesus, we know him, then we're going to seek to walk as Jesus walked. The false apostles are not doing that. Don't listen to them. And he goes on, and you remember he reminded them that it was an old commandment. Uh, He's not giving them some new thing. The commandments to abide in the Lord, to know and understand that God is light, He is glory, He is holy. That's not a new commandment that goes all the way back to the beginning of, of creation, to the old covenant. John's saying, we're not saying anything other than Jesus Himself taught us when He said that God is light. He is holy, and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's Jesus. But He says, I'm also giving to you what is a renewed, not new in time, but a renewed, a restored, a resurrected commandment, which thing is true in Him, and it's true in you. And that thing is true in you. He's given them assurance. The commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you, that you walk in the light as he is in the light, that you have fellowship. The things he's been saying. And he says, this thing, is it was true, and it was manifested in Jesus. And the good news he's saying to them, I've also seen it's true in you also. I see it's true in you. And that's why he goes on and he says again, then the false teachers are saying, if, you know, if we say that we know God, and yet we hate the brethren, we lie. You're not of the truth. But he who is of the truth, who knows God and truth, will love the brethren. 
You will love them. You will not hate them. You will value them. And again, what we're seeing today then is beginning with verse 12 is John saying, Brethren, in light of all these warnings, and I'm calling out false teachers to you, I want you to be sure and understand, though, that as I do this, I want you to be grounded on this. I want you to understand what is true about you. It's like he's saying there, I know, I know you all, and I know that you are not of the world. I know that you are not darkness. And so this little pastoral pause in verse 12 through 14 is meant for their encouragement to remind them. I'm, I'm sure after these words in verse, uh, in verse 3 through 11, I'm sure there were some among them who with tender soul saying, Oh my, I don't always keep his word. I want to, but I fail. <laughs> I struggle. He's reminded them already, I write these things so that you wouldn't go on in sin. And you won't go on in sin if you know God. We're going to see that in chapter 3, walking in sin. But when you stumble, when you fall, as you will, I write these things that you might sin. But also know that if you do, we have. Who's the we? That would be, he's saying, that's you. We is you. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. You have a propitiation. So you tender souls... That you love Jesus and yet you struggle and you stumble so often. You souls that saying you've heard these words, it's very black and white. You say, oh, John, I do love the brethren. I do believe, help my unbelief. I do love the brethren. I want to love them more, but I know I struggle. <laughs> I know I struggle. But I want to follow Jesus in truth. John is addressing that. And he's saying, remember who you are. And look what he says today. We're just going to focus today, not on this whole passage. I'm going to take this in two weeks. But today I want to focus on one key segment here. In verse 12, he says this, I write to you little children. And then at the end of verse 13, he says again, I write to you little children because you have known the Father. And in verse 12, he said, I write to you little children because your sins have forgiven you for his sake, his name's sake. Let's consider today, brethren, what it means to be the implications of these, uh, uh, to be children of God. Number one, number one, verse 12, he again, he starts by saying, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And then in verse 13 again, little children. What's interesting in the Greek here, um, behind this, there's actually two different words for children, little children that are, are used here. And this is actually one of those places where it matters. In verse 12, the term that's used there is the term paideia. In verse 13, the term, uh, the term, I'm sorry, in verse 12, it's technia. Verse 13, it's paideia. You don't have to remember those, but here's the, here's the point. Is the word technia in verse 13, little children translated there. It's, a, it's from a word that is linked, derives from, derives from the word for bearing children. It emphasizes the nature the common nature that children share with their, their parents, right? When I have children, my children, better or worse, they come out and you'll be able to look at them and say, and, and certain things you'll look at them and say, yeah, that's a Morris, right? That, that's a Morris, that's a Smith. You, know, there's just, you can tell. And not only in the way they look, but oftentimes in, in the way they act. You know, there, there's just habits and things. It's like, yeah, I see that. That, that apple didn't fall from the, far from the tree. Um, that, that's true. There's that natural, uh, uh, you know, biological der derivation that nature our children have with the parents. Children of the same parents share their parents' DNA. Their, and not just DNA, but often their habits, their ways of being and thinking in the world. John is emphasizing by using this word in verse 12, the idea that these little children... So we're going to see that they are God's children, born of God, born of the Spirit of God, and therefore sharing, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, of the partakers of the divine nature. Not that they're divinity, but they're sharers in the divine nature of God, the life of God. The second term in verse 13, where, where he says there, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father, that word is paideia. And the word paideia has the idea more of, of like a family, familial discipline, familial training, or the familial nurture, 
Right? We see this word show up again in Ephesians 6. We all know this lesson. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but rather bring them up in the nurture, the admonition of the, of the Lord. That is to say, bring them up in the school of Christ. Right? Bring them up in the school of the Lord Jesus Christ. The nurture, the culture, maybe you'd say. So the reference here to paideia has the idea not just of, of, of being children of God in the sense of born of God, but the sense here is of children of God who are part of the household, part of the economy, and who are doing their father's business. Right? Jesus says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? That, that's it. Did you know that, that my father's my father, he's my, my, and, and I'm, I'm his son and disciple, and that I must be doing and walking as my father walked? Right? So the things that my father gave me to do, those are the things I do. The interest of his kingdom, the glory of his name, that the father may be glorified in the son, that's what I do because that's what he's taught me to do and because I trust my father. That's Paideia. And so both of these things come together this, in, in these designations. And, and, and I said, the reality is, brethren, that all of us who are born of God, all of us who are, who are in, in Jesus, even with, as we saw in Matthew 18, with, even with that childlike just faith, it doesn't have to be a deep faith. As you get older, we become young men. <laughs> the word of God abides in us. We'll see next week. It becomes deep. We understand more. We know more. But even that childlike faith that just trusts God. I know nothing else, but I know that God is my Father. I know the, the, is that simple? The reality is, is that we're all, brethren, offspring in, in both senses if we are in Christ. We are first children of God, having been born again, born from above born of God in the spirit, but we are also, we are spiritual offspring of those whom God has used also uh, in the school of Christ. And it's interesting, I should note here too, that John, I think, is referring to them, that special, not just in the sense of, uh, in the school of Christ, but that they are John's spiritual offspring. Not that they were born of John, but that John was the one who had been used by God to bring these saints to the Lord. Right? He addresses them as little children several times in this epistle. We already saw it up in 2.1. Right? Little children, it's that same word. It's, 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 uh, it's technia, paideia. It's my little children, beloved, chil beloved children, who, the Lord, who are dear to me because the Lord used me to disciple and bring you to the faith. My dear children, God's dear children. So, brethren, we are all, both in terms of nature as well as in terms of nurture, if you're in Christ, you are children of God in both senses. I want you to remember that. You have His Spirit within you, the very Spirit of Christ. We are born again, born from above with a new nature, but also that means that we are enrolled as disciples in the school of Christ. And that's, that's our culture, that's our calling, that's the household, and that is the thing that is going to define our lives is being about the business, the kingdom of our Father as Jesus, the great Son of God was. Secondly, all of God's children, all of us, we also, as he says here, we have our sins forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. The obvious question to ask here, and I'll let y'all help me out here, what is sin? Oh, define terms, right? Sin what does the catechism say? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Okay, it's, it's a lack of conforming to the standard of God's righteous law, His word, or it's a going beyond the boundaries of. Right? It's, going up, uh, it, it's going outside of, the, of where God has said is the, the sheepfold. It's not trusting God which then goes into actions of distrust. We're told in 1 John 3, verse 4 and 5, he says that whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against the law, the word of God, as our Father and as our Creator and Lord. And you know, John goes on, he says, that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins and that in Him there is no sin. And sin is, and it's just guilt, is the fundamental obstacle that prevents sinners from being in fellowship with the Holy God. That is the thing. 
So that's why the gospel came, the good news of righteousness in Christ came to deal with the sin problem. The penalty of it, as well as the power of it. Well then the second question. He, he says here, I write these things to you little children because your sins are forgiven. What is forgiveness? What does it mean to say that your sins are forgiven? Well, biblically, forgiveness essentially means to send something off, to put it away, to let it go. It means not to hold on to an offense against you and to count the debt as paid in full. Okay? To forgive means to cover by a blood atonement. Think Hebrews 9.22. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sins. God is not like us. Thanks be to God. He doesn't just kick things under the rug. He can't. He's altogether too holy. His eyes uh, cannot look upon evil. He cannot just kick sin away and pretend that it's not there. That's not covering. That, that's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? They sinned, and so they had shame, and they went off real quick, and they essentially made little fig loincloths and a bikini to try to somehow in their human flesh to cover themselves. That was human covering. The Lord God comes in the garden and He says, let me give you a real covering. He kills an animal and He makes tunics for them to cover. That's a real covering. That's what it means. He is giving them a pardon. There's going to be penalties. There's going to be discipline. They're going to be kicked out. They're going to have to go outside the garden in the world because there's that. But he says, I'm still going to raise up a seed for you. He's going to crush the head of that serpent that just brought this about. Rest assured, he will crush that head. There's hope for you, Adam and Eve, and for your posterity. A Redeemer is coming. And he will be the second Adam. And he will undo what you have done. And you will have full redemption by faith in him. So brethren, Forgiveness does not equate, like I said, to some false covering. It doesn't, it's not shoving and hiding sin under a rug. It's not running away from God to hide and make fig loincloths. That's not it. Forgiveness does not come about by running to the useless fiat currency of good works either. And somehow an attempt to undo or overcome our sins. Brethren, we are, there's a reason why we're not Catholics. The gospel of grace says you cannot cover your sin but by a blood atonement, an effectual, once for all blood atonement shed for you. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away our sins. He is blood is the gold standard that actually has backing in the heavenly court. It's not like the stuff that we carry in our pockets, which is pretty much worthless. <laughs> right? Jesus' blood alone the blood of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world takes away the sins of the world, effectually takes away the sins of all of His people. Though our sins are like crimson, yet He makes them white as snow. And again, brethren, if you've ever had a situation where you've had a white carpet and spilled like wine or something on it or a white wall, you know, good luck <laughs> trying to get that red. You may turn it from red to pink, but there's always going to be something there. And against the backdrop of the perfect, spotless whiteness and righteousness of God, your sin, my sin, sticks out like a big red blot. What can possibly avail to take that away and to make it white as snow? The blood of Jesus. Right? The blood of Jesus can do that, and He does, by which we draw near to God. So forgiveness from that God means confessing our sins, as we've seen again. It means walking in the light, not doing as Adam and Eve, not fleeing from the light, but running to it in faith because we know that in the light our God has that tunic, the robes of righteousness of Jesus to cover our sin, the priestly robes that we will always walk and serve in His presence even though He is light and His holiness has not diminished one bit. The Shekinah has not dimmed its light one bit but brethren, we walk in the light of the Almighty. Ben earlier talked, we read uh, Jeremiah. He read from uh, Jeremiah, he read Exodus 34, right? There's Moses. I can't look at the light. Cover me in the cleft of the rock. 
brethren, in the sight of that, you and I, through Jesus, through the veil, which is his flesh, we draw near. And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from glory to glory by the glory of the Lord. Brethren, I want to exhort you, if your sins, and they are in faith forgiven, if they are washed white as snow, first of all, believe that to be true. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. So you can say, and it's not hubris to say so, yes, in my conscience, when I have sinned and I have fallen again, I have stumbled again, I don't want to walk in sin. I'm not going to just stomp in the mud of sin because the Spirit is in me. But when I fall in it again and, I, and my conscience pricks me and the Spirit is saying, Steve, you know you did that. You know you didn't trust the Lord. You've failed in faith toward God. What do I do? I just, I remind the devil, I remind my soul that his precious blood, as we sang earlier, was shed for me. Five bleeding wounds he bears. They pour effectual prayers. They firmly plead and they do effectually. I am washed. Yes, I did exactly that, and it was probably worse. But the blood of Jesus has washed my sins, and I stand before him humbly but confidently, knowing that you, devil, you will, not steal my, my, you will not steal my confidence. You will not steal my joy in the Lord because there is a fount filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins and sinners washed beneath that floods and lose all their guilty stains. Brethren, I want you to learn to be bold, to believe what John says here. In the midst of the heresies, in the midst of the lies, in the midst of stumbling and sin, you can say, I was bought with the blood of Jesus. He is my propitiation. He is my atonement. And therefore, as John says, I am a child of God. To use that more modern song, I, I no longer will walk in fear. I am a child of God. I think I'll know that song. I don't remember exactly. I am, a, I am a child of God. And my sins have been washed as far as the east is from the west. I can believe that, and I have a confidence and assurance that I am His and He is mine. And He says here specifically that He does this for His name's sake. Do you notice that? Your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. What has this got to do with Jesus' name? It's really simple, brethren. It has to do with the vindication, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the vindication of the righteousness of God. Why don't you turn back to Romans chapter 3 just real quick. As we go to Romans 3, I remind you a couple weeks ago when we looked at Romans 1 that the gospel, the gospel, the good news is the gospel because it, it, it speaks to us of the righteousness of God, right? Romans 16, we're not ashamed of the gospel because in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the, justice of, uh, the just will live by faith. It is the power of God to salvation, to transformation, to justification, both legal as well as moral, transformation. The gospel is that power. And he said that that gospel specifically is about the righteousness of God. On the one hand, it's the righteousness of God that he goes on, he says, for the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and their idolatries of heart and life. The wrath is, the righteousness of God is rightly and justly poured out. He will do right. It's like Abraham in Genesis 18, right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. He will deliver his saints, but he will, he must deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. He will. That wrath is poured out in righteousness, but it's that same righteousness, as Luther said, that very same righteousness, that faithfulness to his covenant and his promises for the sake of his holy name and before men, it is that righteousness then that also moves him to be the one that righteousness changes and transforms and makes his people righteous and saves them by his mighty arm and power, keeping 
the covenant and faithfulness and the promises to Abraham by that same righteousness that also condemns the ungodly. So look at Romans 3, because Paul sums this up so well. He just he hits this on the head. I'm going to start with verse 19. Let's listen to what Paul says here. The, uh, the Spirit through Paul says, after the conclusion is, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for the law, for the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So that's, that's 1 John 1, right? If we say we have no sin, we lie. The truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's what Paul's saying here. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Make no mistake about it, but look what he goes on. How, how does the gospel of the righteousness of God, how can it be that as 1 John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and justified to cleanse you from your sins and unrighteousness? How can it be that God is just to do that? Here's the answer. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, that is to say the faithfulness of God to His own covenant and promises and His name apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all. Prepositions matter, brethren. To to as a covering, legal imputation. Righteousness to all and upon all imputing the righteousness of Christ by faith and imparting the reality of the risen Christ and the Spirit by faith upon to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Stop there. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Justified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Which Jesus? Verse 25. The one that God set forth as a propitiation. Think back to 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. He set him forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Why did he do that? in order to demonstrate before the whole watching world, before the whole angelic host in heaven and on earth, to demonstrate His righteousness, to demonstrate His faithfulness to His covenant and His nature. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. He didn't crush them in His wrath yet. He was long-suffering. In order to demonstrate at this present time His righteousness, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see it, saints? The reason why John in 1 John chapter 2 says that your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake is because God must vindicate his holy and righteous name in our salvation. That means, as I said, he can't just kick it under the rug. That's not vindicating his holiness and his just wrath against sin and sinners. In order for God to vindicate his holy name, he must deal with your sin by the blood of Jesus. It must be covered. It must be gone so that God gets the glory in heaven and earth and we get the joy. God is supremely concerned, brethren. He is zealous for his holy name in the world. I ask you, are, are we... As children of God, are we, are we zealous for the name and the fame and the reputation of God among men? Can we pray with true hearts, our Father which art in heaven, O oh God, may your name be hallowed here, both as the just lawgiver, the righteous God that will by no means clear the guilty, but also as the God who, because you are righteous, you will save your people, a whole, whole, whole lot of them. And you will save them from the beginning to end to the uttermost because you are righteous. Now that's good news. We close then. Look just briefly. We may look at this a little more next week. But just look briefly with me at that verse 13c. 
Our sins are forgiven us for Jesus' name's sake as little children, but he also says here, I've written to you at the end, little children. And again, this term, that term there uh, refers to uh, those who are in the household of God. It also, I think, refers here too in this triad of little children, young men, and fathers. It refers to levels of maturity within the Christian church, right? They're all children of God in that first verse 12 sense. They're all technia. They're all of God. They're all paideia, rather, born of God. But here he says little children, technia. Backwards. I get those backwards. Sorry. But here he's, the idea is very, it, it, the, to you young ones in the faith, to you who may not have been and known me from a long time ago, John's saying, to you recent converts, he says, I'm letting you know that you, too, I'm writing to you now because you have known the Father. J.I. Packer, I just want to read this. Now, let me just say, too, if you have never read the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, brethren, that, that should be like on your top five list. It's probably the best thing I think that is ever, I've ever seen written on this subject of what it means to know God. But hear what he says here. Let me just read this. He says this, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge, well, judge how well a person understands Christianity, and that would be even a new convert, just the, he says this, find out just what they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not yet understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, the new commandment that John talks about, that makes it new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. One more. In the New Testament, we find that things have changed in some regard. It's not that the God of the Old Testament has become any less holy. He is not at all. He is still a consuming fire. He is still righteous. He hates sin. He will punish the sinner and the soul that sinneth must die, but... In the New Testament, we find a new nuance. God and religion are not any less than they were. The Old Testament revelation of the holiness of God and its demand for humility in man is still presupposed throughout. But something has been added as an emphasis. A new factor has come in. New Testament believers deal with God now explicitly as their father. Father is the name by which they call him. Father has now become his covenant name. For the covenant which binds him to his people, the new covenant in Christ, now stands revealed as a family covenant. Christians are his children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to God as in the old, but on the boldness and the confidence with which believers may now approach him in Christ. A boldness, not an arrogance, but a boldness that springs directly from faith in Jesus and from the knowledge of his saving work by which he has forgiven their sins. You see it? Brethren, it's because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake that you now know him and can call upon him and must call him as, as father. Our Westminster Confession, chapter 12, says this, that all those that are justified, God vouchsafes in and for His only Son, Jesus, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, that is to make us children of God, by which we are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God, have His name put upon them, 
upon us. We receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. We are pitied, we are protected, we are provided for, and even chastened by him as a father. And yet we are never cast off, but rather sealed unto the day of redemption, and therefore inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We're told in the scriptures that we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You were, Ephesians 1.13 says, You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of adoption, of promise. And that spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance that we will inherit because we are in the household of God. It is the guarantee of our inheritance until... Until the fullness of redemption of that purchased possession to the praise of God's glory. We have been predestined, Ephesians 1 says, to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Brethren, do you see this? So let me ask you then in closing, real quick, what does this mean? What are the applications here for me? Just four, and again. These are some things Packer brings out, but, but I think they're just so salient here. Number one is as children of the Father, as his beloved little children, the first thing that that means is that you deal with God in a relation that, first of all, recognizes his authority. A father commands his children. He's not harsh, he's not, but he is the head. They understand that. Children have authority. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Right? The fear of the Lord is not the end of wisdom, but it is the beginning, right? Michael Card once said, the fear of the Lord is not the end of wisdom, it's the beginning, but he says, that path of, of fear leads on to love, and love is, love is fearless in its ways. For love himself was not afraid to die that we'd be saved. You grow to know Jesus more and more, and that's what we're going to see John's going to say about the fathers, is that they know him who is from the beginning. But it starts with the fear of God, the honoring and reverencing of God as God, as Father. That's the path of true faith. That's the beginning of true faith. We don't need to look at that as some have some in church, I think, zealous souls have often sit, done and said, you know, if you're not a, a fully mature believer, we're not sure if you're a believer at all. Brethren, in Matthew 18, Jesus, using this same term, paideia, said, let the little children, the paideia, come unto me. Forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The faith of the paideia he says, unless you become converted and, and as, as little paideia, as, my, as children, unless you have faith like a child. You know, as I've said, a child may not be able to understand and explain, for example, why the chair holds him up. <laughs> Brethren, I may grow in my understanding to where I can understand the physics of how chairs are built and of why they hold me up and why they work and resist gravity. But the ultimate act of faith is, do I sit in the chair? And a little child, if I take a child and put him in the little chair, I don't have to tell the, the child, does the child sit there and doubt whether the, child, the chair is going to hold him up? No. The child may not know much, but he believes. He's seen that chair hold him up before. He believes it's going to do him again. You know what that's called? It's called faith. You trust God. And these little children trust God and they honor him, therefore, as God. So first of all, it's an, an element of authority and honor to God. Secondly, the fathership of God then means affection. The Father loves the Son, Jesus, and the Son loves the Father. And he also loves the other sons and daughters. He loves them with the same love that he had towards the Son. And so, brethren, I want you to receive this and say, God is my authority, and I must honor him as a father, but also the father, as a father, good fathers do, do. You know, he's a good, good father. That's who he is, right? And he loves me. 
He has sent his only son to die so that I may live an everlasting fellowship with him. And that's the last thing, is that fatherhood means fellowship. Children walk with their parents. They are designed by God when that relationship is strong to just be near and dear, to be discipled by their parents and walk with their parents. So all of these things. So brethren, in closing now, I just exhort you today. I want you to believe. You who are in Jesus Christ, you have put your faith in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And you little children, like myself, brethren, you have known the Father, and more importantly, the Father knows you. And because of that, the Father is not going to let you go. I want you to draw near to him this week afresh, to honor him, to reverence him, to obey him. Maybe there's things in your life you're looking at me and say, Steve, I know I have not dealt with the word of God with my father in the kind of obedience and honor that a child should have towards their parent. I'm going to go home and repent and get it right. Because my good father is waiting eagerly, running down the road to make sure that he throws his arms around me. He will, because he has affection. I'm not going to doubt the affection that my father has for me. It's true, it's real. It doesn't matter what the devil says. It doesn't matter what the world says. My Father loves me, will love me, and will continue to love me. And brethren, with that thought, I want you to walk in fellowship with him and also then with his people, with those who call upon him in truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. You are a good, good Father. That's who you are. And we are loved by you. That's who we are. Oh God, I pray that we will have within this congregation a sure assurance of our faith that will be unshakable, not based upon any attempts to merit, not attempts to please you in our flesh or to do enough, but a faith that lays hold of Jesus and says he is my advocate, he is my propitiation, my sins, though many are forgiven for his name's sake because you were a God who exalts your name and your righteousness in the salvation of those who flee to Jesus in truth. And Father, may we grow and know more and more this week the blessed reality of what it means to be children of God with all honor, with all righteous reverence and obedience, quick to repent when we have sinned against you and not done what is pleasing in your sight. Father, may we have a deepening affection for you, even as you have for us. And Father, in so doing, may we walk in fellowship with you and your people in the light as you are in the light. Father, help us to that end, we pray, for we cast ourselves on you as a good Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.